gosh, Roy, I'm doing me singing. Me, I haven't had that much to drink. I've only had a, a few glasses of wine and a couple of vodkas. I'm only like a third of an Ollie Rage. I'm off a Peter O'Toole. I'm only about three quarters of a Judy Garland. Now let me do me singing. <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen, before I make this speech, I'd like to raise me glass and say to for the me, oh, I won't try to conceal me thoughts or say what ain't true, but I must point out some facts which we, I feel may apply to you. Each day, sitting, smoking, talking, drinking, walking in the afternoon. On and on you go till soon. Dookie. Yes. I'm just going to interrupt myself because you know this song that I'm singing here. Yes, a beautiful song, ladies and gentlemen, by Clouds. Yes, and you know the lovely, lovely man who wrote it and who sings it usually, right, when I'm not singing it, right? Yes, Billy Ritchie, who's the focus on today's Dookie Radio well, show. Well, just, I was just thinking, because I needed to ask you, you know, you young people, you know you've got this thing when you're in a relationship, right, and you want to go do the dirty, dirty with someone else, right? Swinging. No, not the swinging, not that, no. When you want to do... When you're in the relationship and you want to go off and do the dirty with someone else. Do you mean polyamory? No, I don't even know who she is. You know, when... She's my next-door neighbour, Polly. <clears throat> you're married to someone called Polly? No, she's my neighbour. Oh, I don't even know it. Anyway... She gets around. Yes, I imagine she does. Um, you know, when you don't want to break up your relationship... Mm. But so your your other off gives you like permission, and it, to go off with someone else, you know, like once, and they call it like a corridor ticket or something like that. A hall pass. Oh, an hall pass, yes. So I was speaking to me Roy about it. It wasn't I, Roy. I was speaking yeah. to me Roy, and he says that I can have an hall pass for the Billy Ritchie. Because he's such a lovely, lovely man. He is a lovely man. And he's so sexy and he's such a natty dresser and, and I like a musician, I do. You certainly so, do. Uh, and it's okay because Roy, don't you, Roy? Roy's got an all pass yeah. for that young... Who's that young woman, that Glory Honeypot? Uh, Glory you know, Hunniford. Yes, that one, you know, the young one with all the air in that. Mm. He's got... So I thought if he's got an all pass for the Glory Honeypot, right... Then I could be Billy Ritchie's. Hunterford. I could be Billy Ritchie's cougar, couldn't I? So you want to be the cougar with a hall pass to solicit the affections of our guest today, Billy Ritchie? I would, and I'm going to be his cougary cougary. Okay. And I love a musician, especially when he's got a great big organ. Billy Ritchie certainly does have a very big organ. A Hammond. Yes, he calls it an Hammond, doesn't he, his big organ? Yes. And uh, occasionally he even has a rotating Leslie. Oh, do He also has been known to destroy his organ on stage. I know, I don't want to hear about none of that. I don't know what you young people get up to today, so I don't know about that. I just... Now I've got an all pass for the Billy Ritchie.
You're entertaining all your friends and constantly on your feet. You're burning the candle at both ends. You're trying all to make ends meet. Hello, hello, hello. It's an absolute honour to welcome into the Dukey Radio Show studio Billy Ritchie, the man who invented prog. And he really did. I first heard about our guests' innovative musical endeavours with the band 123 and later Clouds through recent Dukey Radio Show guest Bruce Thomas's book Rough Notes. And in a recent prog special on this very show, Dave Dawson and myself waxed lyrical about Billy Ritchie's influence on the likes of Yes and Emerson. In this second instalment of our three-part interview with Billy, we chat in depth about our guest's time with the band Clouds until the trio split in 1971 and investigate the group's chemistry both off and on the stage. We also explore the pros and cons of being ahead of their time on the music front further. In addition, we banter about the American problem, where a group placed to tens of thousands of people on one side of the pond, while largely entertaining only hundreds back on home turf. The control freakery of the legend that is Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull also gets a mention, and Billy enlightens us about fixing David Bowie up with girls, being mistaken for Francis Rossi after appearing on Top of the Pops, signing and breaking away from Chrysalis Records, having a run-in with David Bowie, and patching things up with the Thin White Duke decades later. Being far out, man, in the States, discussing good shit with Paul Rogers, and how proving that the trio were true Scotsmen in the kilt stakes, that is, proved to be beneficial for the band and a source of fear for parents everywhere the group roamed. Me and Harry is like, you know, playing between all the cracks there is <laughs> and trying to kind of outdo each other. And it was, it was great that Ian was such a straight bass player. If he'd have been like us, it would have been a cacophony, you know? But because Ian was holding the line... And keeping it where he, he was. He keeps things very, very groovy, you know. In, he just holds the line. Mm, what were relations like off stage and out of the studio? Ah, uh, we were we were great friends. We were great friends, still are, but we lost touch for a while after the band because I just van. I just wanted to vanish. Really, I just wanted to get out of it. I mean, on the last the last concert we ever did, I, I kicked all the gear off the stage and walked out and left all my gear and everything. And this is nineteen seventy-one. At the end of 1971. We what? made a conscious decision to stop. It wasn't that we weren't, you know, we were doing okay, but it was, you, you probably know this saying, it's called the America Tour Syndrome. We were playing to 15,000 people, 10, 15,000 people a night, 
and get fantastic reviews and great receptions. Then we came back here and the very first gig we did when we came back here was a place in Wales and they had a big sign post outside saying, Dance to the Clouds, to two, three hundred people. And then we're thinking, oh, we, we came back feeling like stars and you have this great anticlimax, you know. Kind of kills you a bit. It is a bit soul-destroying. And we ran into all the stuff with Chrysalis, you know, I was angry at Terry because he was just spending all his time with Jethro Tull when he should have been, I felt, with us. Which is confusing because by that particular stage, certainly by 1970, 71, Jethro Tull had you know, become one of the trailblazers yes. of the, the prog movement. <laughs> oh, trust you to use that phrase. <laughs> yes. We'll discuss the relevance of trailblazing later. With Jethro Tull, you know, there's certain parallels in terms of the, the musicality and musical dexterity, which you know has parallels with what you were doing. It's, from my view, a more disciplined and measured affair. If you know anything about Ian Anderson at all, he's all about control. You know, he's people it used to make me laugh because people uh, would think he was like a drug crazed happy or something, you know wild and all that. Mm. He was more like Maggie Thatcher than anybody else. He was real, a real conservative. <laughs> he was a nice guy. I right. mean, don't get me I've wrong. Heard nothing we but were great friends. Mm. We were all great friends. It was, we were on the road together a lot. So we knew each other pretty well but Ian was, Ian really wanted the other, uh, wanted full control of everything. Every note ever be played. So that's that's kind of how it was. So he was dictating parts to the, the rest of the well, band. The band. The band, the original band was... The, in my opinion, the best band, the four guys. But it, one by one, they were... Is that with um, Mick Abrams? Mick Abrams. On, Mick, the original guitarist, They only yeah. did after the first album, Mick went, because he was too much an individual. Him and Ian were at each other's throats. A very distinctive guitar player, you know, brilliant musician. He, he couldn't accept the, the discipline of what Ian wanted, no. Right. And so, so they got Martin Barr, who's a very good guitarist, mm. but would uh, what, what you want to see, then E-flat, certainly in you know, take it into other areas. And then they clashed. So that was the first. And then Glenn was kicked out eventually too. And then Clive, I think Clive, the, the drummer, Clive Bunker, left him, left himself. But pretty much then Ian could be Jethro Tull and just pay sidemen. And he got all the money too because Ian had a good business edge, you know. Mm. I mean, goodness, and... To be fair, you know, still flying the flag for prog and very, very proudly. There never was a band uh, called Jethro Tull after the the other guys left. The, the, the band didn't exist anymore. It's just Ian Anderson. There wasn't such a thing as Jethro Tull. That's just a name. He, he could make. He's a clever guy. He could make good music and always would do something interesting. But I think they lost something by not having that freedom. The original band was to me the best band just my opinion the one theme which i detect when you're talking about jethro toll the first version what they became and yes and emerson lake and palmer is that when it became self-indulgent for the sake of it in a lot of ways deviating from from bluesy influences is where where it went wrong absolutely i mean like I say, it's a difficult one for me because I don't want to be too ungenerous or petty, but um, I never really... I thought Keith was was a good player. I mean, he was very good, technically, and all that, but 
he never to me was a rock player and and it was typical of that certain kind of, you'd often see him around town jamming with people and stuff he loved all that i mean i hated jamming i thought it was such a mess i wanted everything to be right and they didn't care about that. They just loved going, ah, you know, being in among all. And they played all those phrases. I used to say to people in, in my youthful arrogance, I used to say, don't watch him throwing the organ about. Listen to what he's playing. He was very good at set-piece playing. He wasn't a great soloist. And I wasn't a great soloist either, to be honest. I mean, I think I was very good at holding the line of the band. But when it came to solos, I tended to go for power and, and kind of um, all that stuff. Which I suppose, being aware of your limitations, it doesn't sound like there are many, meant that taste was kept at the forefront and power power in a trio in which, you know, it's keyboard-led is, is everything. We didn't like power. I mean, we played at the Montreux Festival with um, it was a band called Stone the Crows, Maggie Bell, all them. They they were kind of the guy the guitarist went on to play with uh, the bass guitarist um, Jimmy Dewar went on to play with uh, Proco Harm and all that stuff ah oh, right right, right. Okay, Jimmy right. Dewar anyway we, that wasn't important we were just playing in in Montreal Festival and the guy who ran the festival came up to us and said not only is it the worst band I've ever heard it's the loudest band I've ever heard and that was just organ bass and drums he didn't he didn't like us but um, it was loud. It was this loud. When we played in America, and there was a guy called Lee Michaels, who's kind of unknown here even now. But at that time, he was a big organ hero, and we did a gig with him. He just had organ and drums. He was playing like, and he said to me, "I have never heard an organ sound like that in my life before." <laughs> and this was big sound. Tony Kay, who was the original organist in Yes, in Yes, yeah. He said to me, "We both had the same model at that time. It was the name one or two. And he said, I can't figure it out. He says, I've got the same model as you. It doesn't sound anything like yours. He said, do you mind if I... He quite, spoke quite well, Tony. Yeah. Do, you, do you mind awfully? Do you mind if I, if I you know, yes, you make a note you, of your You have that setting. kind of accent. I don't. I've got that kind of man from the hills accent. But anyway, he said, do you mind if I put this, put them side by side and copy the settings? And he did that. I said, oh, sure. He copied all the settings. And after the gig, he said, this was at the marquee. And he said, it still doesn't sound the same. Of course, the reason was I was playing with two hands. It was twice as powerful. He sounded like Tony Kay, only slightly differently. <laughs> well, he played different to me anyway. It was just, a, it wasn't a style based on anybody. It was just trying, it was based on me being an egomaniac and trying to be out there. I mean, if you watch that, when I send you the, the video of um, this song called Imagine Me from uh, Beat Club, you'll see at, at the end of the song, there's a bit where it's just organ on its own. You'll see what I mean. Being tangential as we've, cool. we've been. Glad you I, said that I, word I, rather than me. Yeah, goodness. Oh, I'm going to edit myself saying that. Um, what were your influences? The one thing about being self-taught is that's quite an open-ended concept because it, it, it's you can be self-taught but also very, um, you know, we exclusively do things by ear or you could be self-taught and where you have, you know, distinct influences that, you know, in those days would have probably involved, you know, vinyl and playing stuff over and over again. Were you trying to emulate any particular types of music? You mentioned that you wanted to sound like a guitar player, um, but... Not so much sound like one. I wanted to have the kind of authority and position they did. 
I phrased that badly, yeah. No, it, no, no, you yeah. did. No, but that, that was fine. But I just wanted to clarify it, go into it a bit more. That was all. It wasn't that I listened to guitar players and I want to play those notes. It was more, I like, they were standing out there. They were the heroes next to the, you know, this pecking order. Yeah. It's the, the singer comes first and the guitar mm. player second. Well, at that time, the organ player was at the back of the queue from everybody. And I, I th- wanted to be out there. So in, in a way, I suppose, in, you know, watching the... The, the shadows and other um, bands that had guitar players becoming heroes. You wanted some of that action, only you didn't want to. It was all don, e- egomania, really. It right. was wanting to be noticed. There must have been some kind of insecurity at work or something. I don't know. <laughs> you start analysing these things as you go on, as you'll find out. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the uh, I think it was just pure that I didn't want to be one of the plums. I wanted to be out there. I didn't want to just do... Like somebody, I was playing with a guitarist one night somewhere and they said to me, I'd, I'd just like you to play background. I said, I don't do background. <laughs> Find somebody else. I said, if you can't get in front of me, that's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> Intent. <laughs> the As a, as a pre-teen and a early teenager, were you listening to no. jazz? Were you listening I didn't listen to-, to anything. I wasn't even interested. In music at all. So you would just um, tinker away on your own? Yeah, so I just, I mean, I'd, I'd play something that I'd heard on the radio or that, but it wasn't because I liked it. I just thought, well, I was just trying to learn to play or or just fiddling around with it. I mean, I started writing songs, really. As soon as we formed the band, I started writing songs. When I was about 15 or 14 or something, I wrote mm. the first song. So you genuinely have no influences? No. I mean, I liked I liked the Everly Brothers, and I would they would say to me, "Oh, that's great, isn't it?" The Everly Brothers, and I say, "Oh, yeah, it's quite good." Yeah, I never ever thought. I mean, this sounds terrible, but I never ever thought anybody was better than me, right? You know, in terms of songs or that. And even to this day, I don't think I, I think I don't think of John Lennon, Paul McCartney as better songwriters than me. I like what they did. But I didn't. I still, to this day, don't think it was any better than what I did. You should have given Brian Epstein your songs. He never heard them. That right. was the thing. He never heard them. He died before. He never even knew I wrote any songs. Terry did, and Terry was. I mean, they interviewed Terry recently for the Jethro Tull um, thing. Somebody to do with Jethro Tull, and they said, uh, have, have you, "Did you manage any other bands?" And and this was only a few months ago. And he said, I managed the Scottish band called Clouds. And they named all of us. And they said they were excellent musicians and Billy was a great songwriter. But we just couldn't get it together. So that was only a few months ago he said that. Multi-millionaire Terry now. Indeed. I knew him when he lived in the bed suit, you know. <laughs> Back in the day. 1971, you reached a wall, an impasse in terms of the world of Clouds. Yeah, it was a deliberate thing because we just... It was all becoming a problem. I mean, we were we were all married. We were, we were just money and things were beginning to come up, become an issue. Because like most bands, even the Bee Gees, when they started out, we just got a wage packet with a weekly wage on it. Even you might be playing, picked up at limousines and and playing at big concerts, but you still got your wage packet, and it wasn't a fortune. I can't remember what it was now, but it was just kind of okay money for the time. And all those years that we did on the road, that was as good as it got. And um, the band was earning quite a lot, but of course we weren't getting it. it the, was, the band was earning a lot, but also spending a lot. You mentioned yeah. limousines. Well, that's right. Oh, you're we, paying for limousines. We, we didn't realise. When you see X Factor now and they're living in living in the, 
the house, the the townhouse, and they're picked up by this limousine, that limousine. What they don't realise is it's all being chalked up against their mm. tally when the records are made. Oh, you've got the record income minus mm. X. And Ed Bignall said that, you know, Ed from Dire Straits, he was saying that quite recently. He says, call it creative accounting, he said. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> what, what's the phrase cross-collateralisation, where... <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you earn now is there to offset whatever losses you're going to make in future. Well, you know, talking about future, one of the amazing stories, because um, Ke- Kevin Kahn, who I mentioned to you, he did a book quite recently called uh, Any Day Now, The London Years, David Bowie's, the chronology of his... David actually asked Kevin to do that book. He said, "I want. would you do a book for me of the early years? And he said, would you find Billy because him and I had lost touch. He did at one point send me a signed photograph to my son, who I said, I said to him, he was a fan, and he sent me a signed photo. He's still a he's proud possession to sign personally to Ian Aww. by David. You know, best wishes from David on the Serious Moonlight Tour, I think it was. But we'd kind of lost touch, and he said, will you find Billy and um, be sure and include him? So Kevin couldn't find me, because I'm not generally that visible, but he found Harry on the internet and he phoned up Harry's workplace and said, uh, could I speak to Harry? Who's the drummer? And he went, drummer? They said, uh, said it was to do with David Bowie and they were all amazed because Harry hadn't said a word. You know, they didn't know anything about it. That's Kevin found me through that. And um, all that, that's when all that stuff started to come out, you know. Kevin, Kevin and, uh, um, did a book launch at the Proud Galleries in Camden. Mm. And... Um, he said to me, come early and have a drink. And uh, I, I went early and, and there sitting there's David, you know. Oh, nice. With, um, with, but he had a few friends, so we didn't get to talk. We just, hello, you know. So it was kind of weird. But um, that that was the book launch of uh, Any Day Now. Which is, and when did that go to print? Oh, just a couple of years ago. Oh, right, so you that, saw... That was, that was the last time, yeah. Right. And uh, Harry was... Harry was Harry and Ian were invited. Ian couldn't because he was on tour. Harry turned up at the end being a drummer. Yeah, you know, you know what drummers are like. Oh, I certainly do. He turned up at the end, so he missed all of that. <laughs> it was a real bods night, you know. There was like Jennifer Saunders and Don French and all them were all there. It was all kind of a celebrity night. Hoity toity. David the, the didn't, wasn't to be seen. He just was there at the beginning, and then he went away before anybody turned up. Right. And bless from the sounds of it, I think he was kind of aware of health issues. As well, it, it it was only that kind of time, eighteen months, two years ago. And mm. I, the thing that struck me was how ordinary he looked. I thought because I saw him maybe two or three years ago. I saw him on television on a a live thing, and I thought, bloody hell, he looks like my son. He's actually, I know he's uh, younger than me, but he looks like my son. He's he's so kind of well kept. But what I didn't realise was it's all part of being an actor, being made up and everything for the moment. When I saw him actually in the flesh, I, th- I was gratified to note that he looked as old as me. You do not look even close to your years, so <laughs> but let's, let's not... Have you had your eyes tested? <laughs> I have, I have. They're good, it's all good. Keeping with the Bowie theme, the fact that there was a gap and the fact that he wanted to reach out to you after, I suppose, uh, quite a prolonged period it not was, being in contact. It, it was really, I mean, the guys to this day, Ian and Harry, what really happened was, I sometimes exaggerate the story a bit, make it sound like we had a confrontation, but 
It wasn't really quite like that. It, we were playing together at the Brighton Dome. You probably see this on the Trailblazers thing. And um, he, he only played about three songs. He was playing acoustic guitar and he had a Dylan haircut at the time. And, and he uh, got booed off. And this is what year? 1968 or 69. Right. 1969. It's like a 21, 22-year-old David Bowie's performing in Brighton. He'd had Space Oddity, had been a hit by this time. Right. But he was a one-hit wonder. Indeed, that's gone. really easy to people, forget. People join that up, like Space Oddity and then Ziggy. And Ziggy Stardust, yeah. That was several years. By this point, I hadn't seen him since the... The first time I saw him after the Space Oddity thing, I think it was when we did Albert Hall and he came along with me to that. But I hadn't seen him since then. And he, he played about three or four songs and he got booed off, came off the stage quite pissed off. And he had a girl on his arm. And I was further back than the other two guys. We, we were walking forward to see him. He and Harry reached him first and I was a bit behind them. And they went, oh, hey, David, how are you? And he was kind of dead off hand with them. I think he sort of went, Looked at them like, do I know you? Mm-hmm. It was kind of... I didn't really hear what he said around, but he looked like he couldn't be bothered. And he looked up and saw me and I went, why don't you just go and oh. F yourself? Right. And uh, then I turned and walked away. And the other, Ian and Harry always maintained, said, no, no, it wasn't like that. He was just a bit stoned and pissed off that he'd been booed off the stage. And he tried to contact me several times after that. He, he asked Ian and Harry and me to do the helping with the demo sessions of the album that became Hunky Dory and Ziggy. The two the songs that went on them, Harry and Ian did the sessions for the demos. Right. And I didn't. I refused to do it. And he asked me again to play on Life on Mars, and I refused. So Rick Wakeman was my standard. So I should have done it. I was just a bit... With hindsight. I was just a bit... You know, I thought... I thought... I think... I really think he was a bit offhand. Um... And I think that's part of the reason they remembered me. You maybe had friends 40 years ago. You forget each other. You forget you. I haven't forgotten him because he became famous, but I was amazed. Kevin was amazed that he was so generous to me, you know, saying all the things he said. But my little quiet theory is that I think it hurt him a bit that I kind of reacted like I did, but I think he needed it. I was giving him a kick up the... Yeah. If a friend treated you like that... You would you wouldn't be very happy. No, no, and I think that friends need to stand shoulder to shoulder, and you yeah, know, let, but you sometimes know. got to be prepared to say to a friend, you know what, you're talking out your arse. Yeah, pardon. having one's personality shortcomings and highlighted, it can it can. Well, hurt. let's face it. One of the reasons he was my friend and hanging about with us was because we, Brian Epstein was our manager. You know, that was yeah. part of it. He was I mean, a, a networking not, genius. I'm not under any great illusions about that. I mean, we were friends. We, we could talk a lot. You know, we were kind of... He, he gravitated to the band and then to me because I was the kind of mouthy one, <laughs> as you might have noticed. <laughs> but um, that was kind of... We had a good relationship. We were good friends. I used to fix them up with girls. So when I saw all that stuff about Ziggy and bisexual, I thought, oh... I don't believe a word of that. I thought it's. I'm not saying he didn't have some kind of mm. bisexual relationship, but nothing. I never saw any sign of it. Right. So it was. It was always girls. I mean, I fixed them up with girls from the office, the the Nems office, you know. Oh, so the the Nems lasses were able to enjoy the company. Well, well, that's but what happened with the Bee Gees too. You know, I mean, Robin ended up with a, one of the office girls. Molly was um, one of the girls at the office. <laughs> right. We thought that was funny because we, you know, all knew her pretty well. <laughs> 
Do you remember the girl that Bowie was with when he was booed off? Yes, I didn't know that. Didn't find out till till the last few weeks. But apparently, I didn't pay any attention at the time, being a chauvinist pig for one thing. But uh, it turns out it was Annie Nightingale, who's uh, right. the famous oh. BBG, BBC DJ now. Yeah, of course, because this would have been pre-Angie. And uh, Nightingale, that particular time, this would have been before her... I suppose so. I, th- I think she world. was a local broadcaster in Brighton or something. Right. She was something on BBC Brighton or kind of low profile, but she took him for a drink afterwards and said that he was upset about me swearing at him as well as being booed off. So I don't know what they'll show of that. I hope they don't say what I said, but... <laughs> oh, with regards to your appearance on uh, trailblazing. Yes, yeah, she... Um, I only found out that, that one of the reasons I'm appearing is because when they interviewed her about David Boy, she told the same story, including me, my part in there. Oh, right. So she remembered you she by She corroborated name. it. So, right. Yeah, she corroborated. No, she didn't know who I was. Oh, right. No, she didn't know who I was, but she just said this fella <laughs> came up and swore him. <laughs> a good friend and a genuine friend is not going to suffer your bad bits you know, with, with ease and... Uh... I kind of avoided him, you know, and, and uh, we got him into Chrysalis. We, we got him a songwriting deal with Chrysalis. You know, see, he, he was that kind of guy. And that's one thing I do. I, I always say that the big observation about people that become famous is I think of it as soldiers running through a field with um, machine guns mowing them down. And there's all, despite... You'd think the machine guns would slaughter everybody, but there's still some that get to the other side without being a scratch. Now, that, to me, is fame. It's it's like you couldn't tell all the people in our group, uh, not, not I don't mean clouds, I mean in, in all the groups that were around at that time, there was many talented people and many great groups, and any one of them could have been famous and made it. There was only that handful that somehow got through that field of machine guns to the other side. The right... There was. It was just pure luck. I mean, I think David was just lucky with Ziggy. And that was just that moment. It just caught that flame that moment. He tried loads of things like that before. Never happened. That could have easily been just another fad and passed off. Mm. It just clicked at that moment. I've seen that loads of times with stuff, you know. That, to me, is how fame works. It's just you do all the right things. You have to be good. You have to have something to offer. But it has to just catch that moment. I mean, we were in all the right places. We, Brian Epstein signed us. Chrysalis, we were at the birth of Chrysalis, and yet it never happened for us. Uh, that, that, that's Look at Badfinger, the worst story of all, isn't oh, it? Oh, goodness, yes. Steeped in tragedy and also... Two the, the guys p- hung themselves. And even to this day, they don't get the full credit for what they did do. Uh, I mean, it's a, a weird thing with regards to the, the, the credits for that song. You know, obviously, yes. Harry... Nielsen yeah, did a fantastic he, version of he the did, Live. He did, yes. But the guy, the two guys that wrote it both ended up hanging themselves because they never got the money or the credit. I can't live if living is without you. I can't live. I can't give anymore. I can't. And, you know, absolutely fine band and part of the, the Apple... Roster. Yes, well, they had several hits. I mean, they were even on that Big Club show at much the same time as us. And here are the clouds. Billy Ritchie Orgel, Harry Hughes. 
Drums, Ian Ellis Bass mit einer alten Jazznummer Big Noise from Winnetka.
where we got lucky, it's almost like history has its own way of sorting things out. I mean, all this stuff about clouds coming back, it's, it amazed me, you know. I mean, it's not, not a big, huge thing, but it's like mini-fame or something. But um, it's funny, the strange things happen within that. You see loads of those shows from Beat Club, and the, the video and audio quality is very much off its time. But when you see hours from the same show... The producers in this this trailblazers thing they said they couldn't believe how good the audio and video are. It's just like it's some like a little capsule has preserved us. They said the quality is is really unbelievable. What was it like doing that show? Did it? I couldn't even remember. I mean, all I remember about it. The only reason I remember that show is because, as with most of these things, they take you into the control room afterwards and let you see some of it. And I remember going, "Wow, it's in color." Because that would—it all been black and white TV up to that point. Of course, because it would have been one of the first. It color... was the first. Oh, yeah. was it actually the, the very first, the first? It was the first. Color at that point, you, Beat Club. You're, you're too young to remember all this, but but um, Beat Club was the biggest t uh, music TV show in the world at that time. It was it was the show to be on. Although we we were, you say ask what we felt like. Well, you know what it's like when you're in a band. It's the same thing. You just turn up and you do the. You do the show, you know, you don't think anything off it. It was just another show. But I, I suppose it, it's not so, so much the idea of, my goodness, we're making history, this is great. It's the almost the, the other... Like when, we weren't that clever. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, um, when I talk to people who have been on Top of the Pops, there's usually a fairly common thread of horrible monitors, could barely hear what we had to mime to, um, acres of... <laughs> cocaine backstage we actually appeared on top of the pops uh uh at shepherd's bush with um a, a band called reparata and the delrons this is the captain of your ship oh your right i didn't know the title speaking. yeah they um they had a hit with that at the time and they were touring britain for the american girls knocked off supremes as i called them and um we were the backing band we 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 did the tour with them so we did top of the pops with them so that was kind of, kind of weird. Tiny little room with silver paper all around it, you know. Were Nothing. you performing live? No. Right. Did you do... Cause on we did the track. We did right. the track. How did that work out? You, so you, you performed the track live in the studio and they sang they some always vocals said it over was, it. They always called it live, but it wasn't truly live, no. You, you, did, you recorded a backing track. Uh, and then they did... And, and if you, you probably have done some of the BBC... We did all the BBC stuff, sounds of the seventies and all that, and it was primitive. <laughs> it was primitive. <laughs> Too, the mixing desks and the access to be able to control things was pretty minimal. Yeah, it was. It was pretty basic, but it was a good. I, when I came out of the studio at the time, I had a a little moustache and um, sort of Spanish moustache, and a bunch of girls jumped on me and tried to tear my clothes off because they thought I was Francis Rossi. They were appearing doing my pictures of um, Matchstick Man, and then they went. Oh, it's not him. And they all, <laughs> wait a minute, I can be if you want. <laughs> yeah, I'm from Essex, mate. <laughs> See, there you go. Have you had that a was the nearest I got to being mobbed. <laughs> I tell a lie, actually. There was one night with the satellites, would you believe? Right. I was talking about this to, to Maureen, Maureen Stark, who's the widow of Jim the drummer. And uh, we, had, we had a fantastic night with the satellites. We played at this place in Hamilton near Glasgow. And we actually got mobbed and they ripped our clothes, everything, you know. That was the only time that ever happened to me. Right. The, the Satellites, the very first band, which you think is only a little local band. It never happened to me again. And all the places we played, you know, the Fillmore East and 
I would have thought in the in the states, absolutely. No, you never got that kind of treatment. They all thought it was being English. They thought that used to be a standard thing. I'd say they said, from England, clouds, and I go, no, 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 no. Wait a minute, we're not. We're from. We're Scottish. I used to say, if anybody wants to see what's under a Scotsman's kilt, come back to and, and they used to do that. Yeah, they come oh, right. Backstage. Yeah. I want to see what's under a Scotsman's kill. Goodness, that's that's surprising. By the time you'd developed away from the the satellites and followed your musical destiny, you'd mentioned yourself Such that it was like the, the Marmite factor, where there's the people weren't necessarily getting it. So there may have been women there who found you devastatingly attractive but perhaps they were influenced by those people that were shocked by the music that you were doing well i think any band always does okay with women you know you say that especially at that time really because at that time it was a big thing to be in a stage now Mm. with karaoke and everything else nobody nobody has quite the same respect for it you know you think bands still get some of that but they're not as impressed with you being on a stage. When we when I started out, maybe it was okay for you being much younger, but when I started out, it was like wow, being on a stage, you know, you you you're like elevated. What you really out there? Now, of course, it's like oh yeah, give it anyway, you know, do it anyway.
when our life was fun But soon you realize and you begin to run Now you know I know better than you Now you know I know better than you needs to put the toilet seat down. All of London, even the handbags, are swinging to the sides of the Dookie Radio Show. The Dookie Radio Show does not broadcast on a frequency that exists. However, it's available for download every Monday if you're up for it. And oh, heads up, you are. We talked about the a little bit of the sex. We've talked about the the rock and roll and the prog of it all. But did drugs and alcohol feature in the the life of clouds on the road and off the road, for that matter? We were we were well. I can tell you a, a kind of graphic story that illustrates it. When we were on the road and uh, we were kind of anti all that stuff. Mm. And when Paul Rogers, who was the singer with Free at the time. Singer with Queen quite lately, wasn't he? That's right, yeah. Uh, well, Paul came up. I never got on with him particularly well. He was a great singer, I thought. Mm. I, I really liked his singing. I didn't like the band much. I thought there were people thought, oh, it's great how simple they are. Well, look, great being simple. <laughs> I mean, uh, it was kind of, I was a bit unimpressed. I thought the songs were horrible. 
thought the songs were terrible. All Right Now was about the best one they ever did, or Wishing Well was the best one. They are too great. They are But they were, a tight, they were a very tight little band. I mean, the drummer was very kind of just keep me on the line, mm. and the bass player was very exact. They were a tight little band, but I never really... The only thing I thought was great about them was the singer. I thought he was great. But we didn't get on personally. He came up to us... Um, uh, we're on the road somewhere, and he came up and he says, hey, you guys got any shit? And I says, well, I left one floating back there, and I don't think I pulled the plug. You're welcome <laughs> to it, you know. <laughs> it's kind of corny. He, and his answer to that was, hey, you guys are really straight. <laughs> <laughs> So that was kind of where we... And people used to come up to us in the States and they'd say, I hear you guys are far out. And we'd say, no, only down the road, you know. Uh, you you guys are really spaced out. And i said, no, no, uh, the drummer's in the middle, the bass player's on the left hand. So, you know, we were kind of like that, a bit square almost. And and I was the only one that drank. Uh, Ian and Harry didn't even drink. And none of us took drugs. Nothing. Nothing at all. Billy, your your fellow band members were Scottish. I'm, I'm <laughs> the, the, no, the, funny enough, Ian is Ian drinks a lot now, <laughs> right? But uh, at the time, he didn't even drink. We used to rouse about me want staying in the beer tent when he wanted to go home. You know, uh, I was the only one that even drank, so we were pretty unusual at that time. Mind you, we were very much what we were famous for was. Uh, if we were in town, you had to lock up your daughters, you know. Ah, right. That so, was kind of, right. That was kind of the, the the kilts were on display. Absolutely, <laughs> and, and, and the full the full kind of authentic kilt with nothing underneath it. <laughs> Some of them are straight edge. One of them drinks. Their gigs are far out, and they're going to shag your daughters. <laughs> if possible, yes. That was pretty much how it was. Nineteen seventy-one, the Brick Wall. You said that there was a bit of a crescendo in terms of uh, the emotional discontent that you you had towards what you were doing. How long between having a chat that this has reached its conclusion and doing the final gig was there? It was pretty graphic, really. I think when we came back from, I told you about Switzerland, everything seemed to start to go wrong. We we went to Switzerland and that was bloody awful trip. We we did that Montreal festival. The guy hated us. The the planes were grounded. We did a twenty hour train journey back to Victoria with no heating. Ooh. Ooh. And um, all of us, all of the bands, the British bands were on that. Were all jumping down the seats trying to keep warm. And I mean, all, all of us are used to life on the road, but this was a bit. And 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 it turned into January, and I've got an entry in my diary. It's a bit goes like your house being called Shug, mm. which is Scottish for Hugh. Yes. Um, well, I've got an entry in my diary. Pishy start to the new year. Pishy. <laughs> P-I-S-H-Y. <laughs> and, and that's it was kind of like that. We broke away from Chrysalis at that time too. Felt, uh, Terry wanted me to have my own publishing company and I refused. Uh, he wanted the band to break up. Why did you refuse? Well, I was... Uh, I was really upset with him because he'd been him and I had been kind of friends you know we were quite we weren't just my manager we were kind of friends and I felt he'd let us down you know mm. I mean in hindsight now I understand that had he not done what he did he wouldn't now be a multi-millionaire and Chrysalis would not be the company he did but but we were sacrificed to that end you know he didn't have time but it was ironically because he liked us so much and and 
and looked on us as his personal band, he wouldn't delegate anybody to do the stuff that needed to be done for us either. So we got kind of ignored, you know. It was for that reason. So I was kind of mad at him. And he said, we'd, we'd really like, we want, we think the band, we can't do anything with the band. It's, it's reached its zenith. And we, we were feeling pretty pissed off. And this was January or February. And um, it, he said he wanted me to make my own records just on my own. And I, all I did was tell the guys in the band and we broke away from Chrysalis.
we carried on for about nine months and we just got fed up really so we, that, we, you we would were working have to label. everything we went to play in germany and stuff mm. we would it was quite a lot harder on our own we we were actually just doing gigs and fans breaking down and we had to pay for it and all that mm. and the family stuff too was intruding you know we were married and there's all kinds of problems beginning to surface so it was just that growing up thing really we just in hindsight we probably should have carried on because we 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 disappeared off the radar pretty rapidly but looking at it a lot of the bands that stuck with it did did okay but you know we didn't know we were as well regarded as we were especially in america so no internet at that time with no idea i've only seen some of the reviews in the last year or so you know it's one of those weird things chrysalis should have had their pr people in the states come gathering all of these reviews to use as a means of promoting the band they didn't on this side the of the records pond. or anything. They didn't. I mean, there was weird things going on. Like Chrysalis originally um, organized all the tours through a company called Premier Talent, which was an American company. They mm. organized the tours, and Chrysalis had decided to do their own tours and everything else. So they, they were in litigation with uh, Premier Talent. Oh. That prevented our record getting out. Didn't prevent Jethro's record getting out, funny enough, but it prevented our record getting out at a time when everybody wanted to buy it. It was their second album, Up Above Our Heads. Right. Which was a more stagey sort of album. And um, people wanted to... Now you see comments now, people saying we wanted to buy it, but we didn't know anything about it. It just wasn't publicised or anything. So, um, I mean, Scrapbook had done... Scrapbook was album of the month in Melody Maker. Which at so that particular okay. time yeah. was, my goodness, that's... Yeah, that was a big deal at the time. It was it was album of the month. Yeah. Melody Maker was king. A, Cla- a girl called Cloda Rogers, you've maybe not heard of her. She's mm. before your time, but she was a big star of that time, female singer. And she did the song Scrapbook. She did that as well on television shows. Of it. Brilliant. So Yeah, but we never didn't... got any good out of it again. But... but We'd kind of, it all been allowed to implode, you know. We'd done all the hard work. I mean, we went down an absolute storm in America. We did a concert in Chicago with uh, Jethro Tull and uh, Leon Russell and, um, you know, who played with Joe Cocker and everything, and Shan Anna. And Billboard magazine went along to review the concert and they gave us the headline review. They said, this band is going to be a giant because live was our thing, you know. We... We blew everybody off that night. I'm just amazed that with all of the positive feedback that you were getting wow. in the US that uh, you weren't relentlessly see, out there. I mean, you were busy out there, but it just seems as though just as... It wasn't capitalised upon. Mm. And um, I see comments now from people on the internet. It's really fascinating. So people saying, I saw them at, I saw them back Jethro Tull at the Fillmore and stuff. It's quite great to see that. All I remember, this one guy said, all I remember is very loud, virtuosic music. From the sounds of it, that's pretty accurate. It was, yeah. I think so. Well, that is indeed your lot. For the moment, anyway. You've been listening to part two of our three-part interview with Billy Ritchie. My name is Dukey and I've been your host. In the next and final instalment, we'll explore the breakup of clouds and life for Billy beyond the band, and what it's like to leave your organ hanging out on a stage in Stoke-on-Trent. Until next time, may the worst of tomorrow be the best of yesterday. 
Now it's time for me to go and uh, <clears throat> pop my weasel. Thanks for listening. Half a pound of tuppenny rice, half a pound of treacle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel. Facebook. Click on your mouse to our Facebook page. to find it will not take an age Facebook www.facebook.com forward slash the Dukey Radio Show the Dukey Radio Show the thin white Dukey is right click your way to the Dukey Radio Show Facebook page www.facebook.com forward slash The Dukey Radio Show The Dukey Radio Show The Dukey Radio Show Let's go late at night You burn a candle and hold them You're trying not to put out the light 